0: Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. In
1: 1944, John Maynard Keynes wrote, The central principle of investment is to go contrary to the general opinion, on the grounds that if everyone is agreed about its merit, the investment is inevitably dear and therefore unattractive. In 2008, Seth Klarman said, Value investing, at its core, is the marriage of a contrarian streak and a calculator. At Morningstar Investment Management, we believe that being a contrarian value investor does not imply being contrary for contrary's sake. Instead, we hunt for opportunities among unpopular assets as a means to increase our chance of finding undervalued investments. This is Simple But Not Easy, a podcast about investing and behavioral science by Morningstar Investment Management. I'm Drew Carter. I'm joined today by Daniel Needham, who's President and Global Chief Investment Officer of Morningstar Investment Management. Daniel leads our business globally, but I think he'd say his first love is investing and thinking through the nuances of our investment philosophy. Daniel, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Drew. It's great to be back. Uh, Daniel, let's, let's get right into it. Why do you think contrarian investing works?
2: Uh, well, it's a good question for a contrarian investor and a contrarian investment shop like ourselves. I think that markets, firstly, most of the time, do a pretty good job of pricing assets on a relative basis. But we would say that markets aren't perfectly efficient or fully efficient and that there are some inefficiencies in the markets at times. And these can come across from various different sources. But we think one of the most sort of enduring opportunity for long-term investors comes from when market participants err in the same direction or or tend to think that an investment is really, really good or really, really bad and that there's not a large divergence of opinions around that so that when there's kind of – everybody's in agreement – like Keynes mentioned, that something's really good or something's really bad, we think that's when the biggest opportunities can be presented for long-term investors. And, um, you know, there's a really good analogy to how market prices are set. And Michael Mobison, uh, who I think is really, you know, the expert in this space and has probably compiled, you know, the best research in this space shows that, you know, if markets operate like a wisdom of crowds, then what that means is that, you know, a large group of people are trying to predict something or guess something, you know, provided that people guess independently, then their errors cancel out. And what can happen is that you can kind of get the signal through all of those collection of people guessing something. And and something called the diversity prediction theorem, which was put together by Scott Page, really shows that provided that uh, the the group of people that are trying to predict something are independent and heterogeneous, uh, then the average guess of the crowd can be as important as the differences of the guesses of the crowd.
1: So let's explain that a little bit more. Yep. So because that really sort of explains the wisdom of crowds, right? Can you dive into what that means, uh, sort of as defined in the book, but then as well as what it means to investing? Sure. So the wisdom of the crowds effectively was something that was
2: um, identified by Sir Francis Galton in the early twentieth century, and he was at a he was at a county fair, and effectively you had to guess the uh, weight of a fully dressed steer. Um, so effectively, how much meat there is in a cow, and, um, and you had to guess that. And what he found was that the average of the guesses of that crowd was off by maybe 1%, something very close like that. And that was the first kind of observation where groups of people guessing something, the average of the group can be very accurate.
1: Despite the fact that most – like maybe one or two people were close – but everybody else was way off, but that, the average.
2: That's right. 100%. And so what happens is in these situations, you can have people guessing and somebody can be really above and really below. But within the group, there's potentially, you know, some people who, who have information. When you aggregate all that information, what you're left with is a signal and the errors cancel out. So if somebody guesses above, there may be somebody who guesses below. And then the wisdom of the crowd emerges as, you know, the group come together to guess. And, and if you think about markets, markets are pretty... probably not a bad example of that kind of groups of people guessing. And so, you know, the wisdom of the crowds, you you need lots of people behaving differently. So you need a, a group of people trying to guess something. They need to be different. Then you need a way of bringing their information together, whether that's in the stock market or whether it's calculating an average. And there needs to be an incentive to be right. And so, you know, people have to try. And when you think about
1: markets, markets are a pretty good example of wisdom of the crowds. And so people are guessing essentially because investing is all about the future and no one obviously can predict the future. And so we can look at the past, we can look at a lot of fundamentals and other things that help us get to that right price, but no one really knows what it is. That's right. I think, you know, if you think about the
2: value of an asset arguably comes from the discounted value of all future cash flows and what those future cash flows are you know, is subjective and uncertain and what somebody's willing to pay for them is also subjective and uncertain. And markets really come together to try to price that uncertainty and work out what assets are worth or, you know, whether that's a fractional share of a business, you know, like a stock or whether that's a bond. And the more uncertain the cash flows, arguably the more prone the markets are to being swayed and therefore maybe the wisdom of crowds not working as well. As it would normally. And that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for periods where, as a contrarian, we're looking for periods where investors are so skewed in one direction that based off our subjective view of what we think something's worth, there's such a big gap and we think we can understand why there's a gap. And that's because investors have been you know, copying each other. They've been, you know, say, imitation, they've been extrapolating, you know, they've been behaving in a way that would lead us to think, wow, mm, that looks pretty extreme and we're going to bet against that view. And so whether that's not owning an asset that's very popular or whether it's actually owning an asset that's quite unpopular. Ultimately it comes down to whether we think something's underpriced, you know, whether we think we're going to get paid a decent return for owning the asset relative to the risk of the asset, but you know, understanding how groups can be biased and is really, you know, an important part of that.
1: So let's just tease that out a bit. In the middle of last century, there were theorists centered around the University of Chicago, right, who, you know, sort of added some precision around how to properly sort of understand markets and how markets then efficiently price an asset. And our feeling there is what? So
2: efficient market theory says that the prices, asset prices will reflect all relevant information such that it's not possible to outperform on a risk-adjusted basis. That is that markets are pretty good, they're efficient, they're informationally efficient, and that trying to beat the market is kind of fruitless activity. And what it says is that there's a large number of really well-educated, well incentivized well-resourced people who are out there trying to make money, and so therefore any bit of information that's available will be quickly reflected in prices and that effectively all those really smart people are neutralising each other's behaviour. There's an appeal to that, but it relies on some assumptions about rationality human rationality that investors are rational. They process information you know, using Bayes' formula, which says that they correctly adjust their expectations based off new information being presented, and that they also use you know, expected utility theory to make their decisions. And so these are relatively rigorous requirements, and behavioral economics really is focused on sort of debunking those assumptions to the point where no one probably really thinks that investors are rational and that That people need to be able to do Bayes formula. And so that idea of markets being efficient, people would say, well, you can't make money being a contrarian value investor because markets are efficient. And efficiency was really based off those assumptions that I described. With behavioral finance coming around saying, well, actually, this whole rationality thing seems pretty questionable. Uh, But then the other arguments to support the efficient market theory were, well, um, even if people make mistakes and so not everyone's rational, the errors they make will cancel out. And that's kind of the wisdom of crowds argument. Um, So provided that where people are behaving rationally, some person's overconfident, maybe they're overconfident on the long side and maybe somebody else is overconfident on the short side, well, maybe they cancel each other out. That's a pretty reasonable argument, I think, at times. But there may be times when they don't cancel out and that's where – the examples I used before. And then finally, arbitrage is the other argument. So even if the errors don't cancel out, there's a group of people with, you know, lots of money that want to take advantage of mispricing and and they're going to swoop in and drive prices back to where they should be. And then, you know, the behavioral sort of finance school came out with the limits of arbitrage research, which said, well, actually, when you look in the real world, you can't arbitrage quite as easily as it appears in the textbook. And so they often use other people's money. Generally, they have a you know short time horizon. Generally, there's limits on shorting. You can't get your hands on every security. You know, When everyone wants to short something, the cost of shorting can be very high. Operating with borrowed money can actually really inhibit your ability to hold a position for a long period of time. And so there's a lot of evidence that arbitrage is actually somewhat limited and, and that therefore, even if investors are irrational and the errors don't cancel out, arbitrage might not be there to clean it up. And so we would say that markets are pretty efficient. You know, I mean, I think anyone that's invested and has gone back and done any market research or looked at the track record of active fund managers, you, markets are pretty good. And so something's working.
1: But there are obviously times when, when markets are inefficient. And so what's working there? What causes markets to be inefficient?
2: There can be a number of different sources of inefficiency, and they could be kind of informational, they can be sort of analytical, they can be behavioural, and so we would say the behavioural, what I've been talking about, where a large group of people behave in a certain way that is maybe biased or, you know, collectively biased in one direction. That's the most pervasive that we think, and so if the errors aren't cancelling out, then we think that there could be you know opportunities, and you know whilst markets are pretty good a lot of the time they're not always efficient and it's there the opportunities that come up. And so we think for long-term investors that can, you know, be quite different, hold views that are quite different to the rest of the market, we think there can be opportunities. But, you know, there's not opportunities every day. It's not as if the markets aren't functioning well. We actually think they function pretty well. And so there's a number of different sources of inefficiency that different fund managers can take advantage of. And for us, we're long-term investors and, and we think the contrarian opportunity, that the behavioural opportunity is the biggest one for us to potentially take advantage of opportunities.
1: So if markets are frequently efficient, they must mean that they're inefficient at times. So when are those times and and what causes them?
2: There can be a number of different drivers for market inefficiency. And the one that I'm really talking about today is behavioral. So if markets work like the wisdom of crowds, and you need people behaving differently independently, um, and errors canceling out, then we think the times when markets are inefficient is when people are behaving dependently, they're not behaving independently and the errors don't cancel out. And so people are biased in a certain direction or a certain view. And that's really what we're looking for. And so the traditional finance school has looked at markets using physics type frameworks, like so sort of mechanical physics. And there's a new school of thought, or maybe not so new, but it certainly wasn't in the CFA uh, <laughs> course when I studied, uh, is complex adaptive systems. And so this is where a system isn't as predictable as you know a mechanical physics system like so thinking about the laws of motion. So an example of a complex adaptive system would be, you know, a flock of starlings, like a flock of birds. And if you've ever seen the large flock of birds move around, they almost it looks like it's almost planned the way that they shift left and shift right. And it's a beautiful sight. And the question is, well, who's leading that flock of birds? Who's in charge of that? And so within a complex adaptive system, you can get these emergent phenomenons, which is really how these flock of birds interact. And and actually when scientists have looked at trying to explain the pattern of behaviour of birds, what they find is that birds generally have a handful of rules that they follow. Stay a certain distance from the bird in front of me or the birds around me, Stay away from predators and stay away from the edge of the flock. And through those simple rules, these birds engage, and you get this beautiful pattern that emerges. And that's a you know complex adaptive system. And so complex adaptive systems have you know a couple of attributes. So they're complex because there's lots of interactions, not because you can't understand it. They're adaptive in the sense that the agents change and evolve and learn over time, so they're not fixed. And it's a system in the sense that to understand how that flock of birds is operating, you don't want to interview an individual bird. You need to understand it in its whole. And so they're the kind of the elements of a complex adaptive system. And so traffic flow is another example of a complex adaptive system. So traffic jams. Much
1: more beautiful with the birds than, than the traffic.
2: That's right. No one likes traffic. And, and, you know, the example is, you know, who's sat in traffic and, and has been really frustrated thinking which idiot causes, who's responsible and well, if you think about traffic, if you think about being a driver, you have a set of rules that you follow. So you might be somebody who is a lane changer. So you'll switch lanes if there's an opportunity. You may be a lane stayer. You may be a speeder. You speed up into the gap whenever you see it and you can't stand it when you when you see other people leaving a gap open. Maybe, you know, when there's traffic merging, maybe you're a courteous driver and you let people in or maybe, you know, you, you're kind of one of those other people that doesn't. And then everybody has a plan, you know, I'm going to get from A to B, but it's not a master plan. It's not a plan that everybody has. It's an individual plan and people will change their plan. I want to get from A to B, but that road is blocked. Well, I'm going to go this way. And so you can see- So the system,
1: you know, affects the, the principles, the principles affect the system. And yeah. So there are, there, of- there,
2: are, there are these things called interactions. And so when a driver responds to the traffic, they change the traffic and then that same driver responds to the change traffic, and then that changes traffic, and these are called interactions. And as the number of drivers increases and as time increases, the interactions exponentially increase to the point that you can't predict the endpoint. It's computationally irreducible. And so complex adaptive systems are these things that are not as predictable as mechanical systems. And so this idea of cause and effect becomes really not as meaningful. You can't untangle which caused what who caused
1: what. And so, and we At can, the extreme, there's chaos theory where a butterfly flaps its wings and it causes a tornado in... That's right.
2: Yeah, that's an example of complex adaptive systems. And so they're actually, in social interactions and in nature, they're actually a lot more common than people think. And so what that means is, um, you know, you need to model things out. So Richard Bookstaber wrote a great book called End of Theory. And he you know, he talks about the importance of simulations and understanding how things could play out. And what that means is that closed form solutions and elegant mathematics are maybe not as applicable in these situations. And so if markets are complex adaptive systems, then things like the idea of an equilibrium is maybe not as relevant. Maybe there aren't stable equilibriums. Maybe there are just you know, patterns that emerge, but over the very long term, there's an element of structural uncertainty to markets. And so we think it's a much more interesting sort of way of looking at markets. And it does raise questions around some of the models in traditional finance that are built on these more stable models that come from physics as opposed to sort of nature.
1: So if you have uh, the market sort of going along like usual, the agents, the investors are interacting with the market, the market is being moved by investors to some small degree. How does that break down? Where do those interactions break down to make the market inefficient? Generally, through
2: a lot of these interactions, the errors probably average out most of the time. And because things are uncertain, it's not as if you know for certain what something's worth. And a lot of the time things are sort of fuzzy enough that there's not that many opportunities for arbitrage or that many obvious mispricings. But it's when there are big mispricings at the really aggregate level that you probably say something really you know interesting about sort of a breakdown of what is called diversity in the markets and so you know the late 90s technology and media and telecommunications bubble is an example where there was a huge breakdown japan in the late 80s where there was a huge bubble i think there was a in sort of mining bulk mining stocks in 2011 12 where people just assumed that you know chinese steel production would continue at 35% you know, per annum forever. Uh, They don't happen a lot. The big scale ones happen relatively rarely. The smaller scale breakdowns where, you know, people maybe are extrapolating and everyone's convinced that, you know, Tesla's a great investment, they happen more frequently at the smaller level. And arguably, it's easier for arbitrage to kind of clean them up. The bigger scale ones, the big stock market bubbles, the big asset class bubbles, they're the ones where there's a really big breakdown in the markets and the market pricing mechanism isn't working as it should because potentially there isn't enough divergence of views. They're the ones that can have the biggest effect, but they don't come around that often. But if you think about, say, Japanese stocks, when Japanese stocks were trading at crazy valuations, you know, well over the, nearly twice the multiple that US stocks traded on in the late 90s. If you thought Japanese stocks were crazily overpriced and you wanted to short them, if you wanted to take advantage of that, you know, it was hard to find something that perfectly matched Japanese stocks. Let's say, you know, you liked GM and you didn't like Ford, where you go buy GM and short Ford, you can neutralize at least your exposure to the US automobile sector and other sort of elements of that industry. Um, It's hard to short Japan and take something on the other side that's going to give you. So you're kind of exposed to the uncertainty of that investment. And that's really where we think, these mispricings, or if you can call them that, where the markets aren't pricing things well, they can go on for a long period of time. And it's the uncertainty for how long these things can go on that actually creates both the opportunity, but also the challenge in taking advantage of it.
1: And Daniel, uh, the behavior of investors that sort of gets markets to that point, you've got some interesting metaphors to help understand the sort of difference between human behavior at times and the behavior of another being an insect, the, the honeybee, correct?
2: That's right. Uh, so for markets to work well, you want people to be making decisions independently,
1: but there's definitely value. W- which is to go back to wisdom of crowds, right? That's, that's, right? that's requirement is so that we're not looking over each other's shoulders and just doing what everybody else is doing. That's right. If, if people are forming
2: their opinion independently and they're trying to be as informed as possible, collecting that information Will likely yield some insight into what something's worth. It's when people shortcut that and you know maybe imitate each other and, and don't do the work and you get these kind of information cascades, things like that. That's where markets can't work well. And so you know the European honeybee or Apis mellifera is one of my favourite insects. And uh, Thomas Seeley wrote a book called Honeybee Democracy, which is an excellent book if you're interested in honeybees. But kind of really looked at how honeybees pick nest sites. So the honeybee in summer, because there's so much pollen and nectar available, you know they'll have a ton of food and then they'll have lots of baby bees and the nest site will get very full. And then the parental site splits in two and the queen leaves with a you know a few thousand bees and then they'll bivouac on a tree. And from there they need to decide what their next nest site will be. And from there, a group of these bees, which are called scout bees, there's a couple of hundred of them, they actually go out and look at different possible places for nest sites. And the bees have very specific ideas of what makes a good site, which I won't go into, but but they all go out and try to find that site. When they come back, they will communicate that To other scout bees and say, hey, you should go and check this site out. I think it's a great site. They do that through a waggle dance, which is quite amazing. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. It's how they communicate where food is, but they also can communicate where nest sites are. It's a dance, and effectively, it has the distance, the direction, and how much they like the nest site. And the interesting thing with the bees is that they will listen to the other scout bee and go, okay, I'm going to check that out. But when they go to the nest site, they evaluate it independently. What that means is that if the bee was wrong about what makes a good nest site, that scout bee won't go back and say, hey, this is a good nest site. They just won't go back and communicate anything. And so the bees independently evaluate each possible nest site but they listen to each other on where potential good nest sites are. So they're interdependent in the sense that they listen to the other bees on possible nest sites, but they're independent in the sense that they'll only say this is a good nest site if they can validate it themselves. And it's this balance between interdependence and independence that makes them very effective decision-making. And effective decision-making really is speed versus accuracy. You want to make a quick decision because deciding costs resources, For the bees, you know, they're no longer in the nest site. They don't have any honey. They're on the clock. So the longer it takes them to decide, the more likely they'll starve. They don't have any food. Accuracy is the other thing. So they want to make an accurate decision. They want a nest site that's going to make it through the winter that's going to protect them from predators. So they don't want to make too quick a decision. And so if you make too quick a decision, let's say you listen to the first bee that comes along, you could make a quick decision, but it could be a faulty decision. If you wait to make the perfect decision, each bee independently makes Mm. her own mind up then what can happen is they'll never make a decision. And so I like the B analogy because investors in a way listen to other investors because, oh, this could be a, an attractive investment. But for markets to work well, there needs to be a level of independence. And it's when that independence breaks down, that's when you know, human group decision-making can become faulty.
1: And there's a study about music downloads that I've heard you talk about that illustrates this kind of mentality with humans. Or That's right.
2: Rather. So, so some scientists did an experiment where they created a website where people could go and download music and they structured it in a way that they could split the group of people in two. So you would come in, the two groups would see different things. And the idea was that there were 48 songs that were available for download. They were unknown songs, unknown artists. And the scientists wanted to see how much people's behavior would change the more they could see what other people were downloading. And so they wanted people to listen, rate and download music. And one group, effectively, they could see the other people's downloads, but they were randomly, the songs were shown randomly on the screen. Another group could see other people's downloads ranked highest to lowest. And it was really clear for the second group which songs were popular and which were unpopular. And what the scientists found was that the easier it was to see which songs other people were downloading, the more likely you would be to download those songs. And so it showed that in this situation where people could be Interdependent, so they could take a signal from other people and then they could independently evaluate whether it's a good song or not. Well, the easier it was for humans to see what other people were doing, the more likely they were to copy them and the less likely they were to independently evaluate the song. And so I think that's an interesting kind of contrast to the B analogy. These are, you know, super effective decision making on the B side, whereas, you know, in a social setting, humans can be heavily biased. Now, what makes a good song is relatively subjective. And so arguably, Song downloads, evaluating whether a song is good is much more difficult than evaluating, you know, whether a, a nest side is good. But I would argue that whether something is underpriced or not or whether it's good investment in a social setting is arguably maybe closer to the music side than it is to the nest side side. Especially for stocks, stocks that that have uncertain
1: cash flows. Because it's not as if all investors suddenly turn into, you know, non-thinking, non be kind of, you know, only music download doing what other people are doing, right? At any time, there's different groups of investors in the market who are making decisions based on different ideas.
2: That's right. So, you know, Richard Bookstaber, who I mentioned before, end of theory, you know, he, he has a an agent-based model where he, instead of saying, you know, you're a a fundamental value investor or or you're a contrarian sort of bottom up investor or you know he kind of groups investors into heuristics like what rules do they use to make investment decisions and so within markets you have long term sort of contrarian investor or value investor you know generally the thing they have in common is that when prices fall they're more likely to buy and when prices rise they're more likely to sell and momentum investors are the opposite when prices rise they're more likely to buy Prices for them are more likely to sell. You know there are short-term investors, long-term investors, institutional investors, retail. So, so you can group investors into these kind of sets of rules. And when there's a balance between these different investor types, then the market price can operate well. When you lose a couple of investor types, you know specifically the contrarian value investor, the market price can be less well anchored, and you can get a kind of what is a more negative feedback process can become a positive feedback. It builds on itself. And so it's really those investor types that matter the most. And and so for us, what we're on the lookout for is when value investors are sitting on the sideline, when contrarian long-term investors. So you know, we like to look at the shareholder register, You know, what kind of investors are owning this, what kind of investors have been buying it. And ideally for a contrarian investment for ourselves, if there is some grouping of sort of investors on the shareholder register, we like it when they're value investors and where the people that are positive- you know generally are using a similar sort of set of rules and we think that's potentially more likely that the asset is not priced correctly.
1: And does that explain mean reversion or the expectation for mean reversion in markets?
2: I think the mean reversion of fundamentals is more driven by the capital cycle and in investment and competition. So high profits attracts competition which you know can drive down profits and you know in some sectors where there are just legitimate barriers to entry and moats Potentially, some of the platform businesses, the capital cycle isn't as relevant. Although those businesses inevitably invest outside of their area of competence, and the returns come down as if there was competition from a sort of a, a capital-based perspective. Uh, the mean reversion in markets, so yeah, price, price, yeah, reverse, that's right. Yeah. So you can have these periods of excessive optimism or excessive pessimism that can kind of mean that really high-priced stocks relative to the rest of the market can come down and vice versa. I do think it's that, yeah, when you get the reversal of these extreme periods of a breakdown of diversity where, you know, investors are moving, you know, too much in one direction, yeah, I think that mean reversion can come there. So, really popular high-priced stocks over time, we think, will become less popular as, you know, diversity returns to the market and, you know, arbitrage comes back and, you know, people start to sell the overpriced stuff and people start to buy the underpriced stuff. So, yeah, I think it does influence that mean reversion that we see in markets.
1: So how do we use this thinking to make better investment decisions? We use it
2: a few ways. We're value investors. And so we like to estimate what we think things are worth based off cash flows and reasonable relative views of relative risk of the investment. We use a checklist from a contrarian perspective. So we say, okay, you know, when we're looking at the potential attractiveness of an investment, we want to ask ourselves, does this tick the box for us across different areas? And so, if there's a breakdown of diversity, we think a few things should probably be present. So you know, investors should be underweight, so most investors being underweight. So it's not a popular asset class. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Ownership is concentrated in that kind of value contrarian fundamental investor type segment. People have pretty negative or low expectations for the cash flow. So relative to other sectors, you know, it looks like people are being really harsh. We'd say you know sentiment is negative. So if you had a sentiment survey, it would be pretty negative. Generally, turnover, we'd expect it to be on the lower side. It's pretty unpopular, not a lot. Maybe there was initial really heavy volume when it was getting sold, but generally volume starting to dwindle. Uh, investors appear to be extrapolating medium-term returns and fundamentals. And so That can be kind of visible in um, mutual fund flows. Like, generally, there's a medium term extrapolation that we see in retail, mutual fund, and ETF flows. And, you know, if you can get any investor expectations, like what are investors' expectations for returns for that asset class, sometimes those surveys are available. Sometimes it's kind of more, you have to assess that from, you know, reading newspapers and things like that. You know, is historical volatility high. Generally, high volatility is viewed as risk by markets. And so, people don't like high volatility. So, the higher the risk of something, you know, generally, we think potentially it's underpriced. Uh, and are there statistical valuation ratios? Are they low relative to history? So, PE, price to book, price to sales, price to cash flow, imperfect valuation measures. But if you tick all those sort of eight boxes, I think, then it's potential there's a breakdown of diversity and that it could be an attractive long-term investment. These factors aren't relevant for short-term investors or people that aren't willing to underperform by too much relative to the crowd or that aren't willing to look very different. These are, these are available, I think, for long-term investors. And you know, one of the reasons the opportunity is there is because it's hard to take advantage of
1: hard, like behaviorally, it's hard to, to sort of have the guts to step into a market that has fallen a lot or, or make these decisions that are contrary to what everybody else is doing.
2: Yeah. Behaviorally, so psychologically, but also institutionally. So it's not just the um, psychology of the money manager. It's the fact that you may get fired by clients or that, um, you know, the organization, you know, may put pressure on you not to take such a big bet, you know, the institutional kind of imperative to toe the line. These are not just, you know...
1: Career risk for... Career, exactly, yeah. The so, yeah. you know,
2: Jeremy Grantham and Ben Inker at GMO have talked a lot about that kind of career risk. And I think that's one of the most pervasive forces in professional money management. And so these opportunities are there partly because people can't take advantage of them. And so on the one hand, we think these are really useful ways of looking for opportunities, but you have to be honest, like they're there for a reason because they're hard to take advantage of both psychologically, but also institutionally. And so these breakdowns of diversity, these opportunities, we think this is a feature of the system, not a bug. We think these are going to continue going forward because the collective psychology of large groups of people and the institutional structure that prevents people from taking advantage of them, we think that's a feature of markets. And so from our perspective, that's a good thing because we think longer term that's going to present opportunities. At the same time, the timing is very uncertain. And so it's that uncertainty of the timing that makes it hard. And we think about the more traditional value stocks have underperformed the sort of traditional growth stocks for a long period of time. I mean, that is kind of throw the towel in long. That is, you know, 10 years, I I joke and say that's three and a half portfolio manager careers. (laughs) 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 It's been,
1: what, nine of the last 12 years that growth has outperformed, I think. That's right. And we talked about
2: that, you know, in in one of the previous podcasts we did. Uh, It's extreme. And so it's hard. Like, so right now, if you look at a portfolio of small cap US value stocks or, you know, global value stocks or EM value stocks, if you're an investment manager and you really wanted to say, they look incredibly unpopular, and they look too unpopular, they tick out, say, eight boxes, to take a big, bold position on that. I mean, that's hard. And if you've been holding it for a while to even add more now, I mean, that's really hard we think that's why the opportunities are there.
1: So what, uh, what makes us think that we can do it? We say it's hard. We know it's hard. What do we do to sort of help ourselves in those situations to do what we think the right thing to do?
2: Yeah. I think the first thing is as an asset management or investment management firm, we have a very clear set of investment principles, philosophy. And from a business perspective, we're willing to do what's right from an investment perspective at times you know, at the risk of the business. And so, we're first and foremost an investment management shop and we care about delivering good investment returns above everything else. And so, you have to have that in the organisation right from the top. Otherwise, at some point, you'll cave and and that is even worse than not having the view in the first place. So, you need to have the organisational level to be able to back it. Secondly, we're primarily a multi-asset investment shop. And so, Generally, the views that we have, we're going to have a lot of views. We're not just going to have one view. So, we will take a bold position in something that we feel is underpriced and other investors might not be willing to step up to the plate. But we're also going to be doing that with a number of different investments at the same time. And so, we think that allows us the ability to kind of ride some of the pain out. And also, as you're sizing the position, we don't start with a huge position up front, we'll build over time. And so our goal there would be to kind of try to have the maximum position at the maximum point of, you know, pessimism before potentially an inflection point. And so not that we're trying to time markets, but we recognize, we go in with our eyes open that things can often, you know, as you buy, they keep falling, which you want as an investor, you want to buy at a better price, but that also yields psychological and institutional pain that you have to be prepared for. So we think about our investments in kind of vintages and it's a mental accounting tool that I think is helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so let's say you know you find an attractive investment opportunity um you know let's call it sort of uh, european energy and let's say we're back in 2015 16 and you you know let's say 2015 things started to look interesting that were you know very unpopular you start with a small position and you build it up and as you get to sort of 2016 you know you've established a relatively decent position because things look relatively cheap and everyone's very negative on the price of oil and and you think well okay the price of oil's uncertain but they're pretty negative views. We think if these companies can recover even slightly that they could, you know, generate decent profits. Now that would be one position. So the vintage for that is 2015. And let's say 2017 or 18 comes along and we establish, 2018 comes along and we, we establish a position and say US consumer staples. We think that as a sector and sort of an industry, it looks relatively cheap. Well, the performance of the energy position and the performance of the consumer staples position aren't going to be one for one. And so... You know, let's say that on average our views maybe play out over five to seven years or, you know, three to seven years. Each of our investments will be at a different point. And so we'll have a portfolio that has lots of these different vintages. And so what we find is that at some point some will be working, some won't be working, but it's often rare, although. Painfully, it's happened you know, a couple of times. It's rare that they'll all be down at the same time. And so we find that that vintage framework in a multi-asset allows us to take advantage of things that if you're a single sector asset manager or somebody that was more benchmark aware, couldn't take advantage of those opportunities as maybe readily as we can.
1: And vintages, this is a sort of metaphor for a wine cellar. You put something in a, in one year and it ages and improves over time. And at some point you move it to sort of the drinkability stack and, that's and right. replace it with something else that's that's young and, and still has time to mature. Yeah,
2: it's a common term in private equity. I much prefer the wine analogy that you've used, which okay. is where it originally came from. So that's right. And, and so we all have investments that are, are maturing at different points. And what maturity means is that our thesis has either played out or hasn't played out and that the prices in the market, it's gone from being very unpopular to being very popular. And the prospective returns are no longer attractive relative to other opportunities that we have. And it's time to sort of harvest that investment. Generally, we like to have very long holding periods and keep our turnover low. So, you know, we're a relatively slow moving kind of- Uh, Deliberative, patient kind of- But sometimes things pay off very quickly and move quickly. And so, you know, US high yield was something for us in 2016 where, you know, spreads blew out. It was related a bit to that energy view, but spreads blew out extremely- quickly and we were able to build a position and then they closed relatively quickly. And, you know, we were able to reduce our exposure, but generally we have a long holding period on our investments.
1: What about, you know, after a massive market event, a crash where things are like, you know, pretty much everything is down 20%, 30%, 40%. What uh, what what makes us think that, that we will sort of be ready to confidently enter a market in that situation and not only that but sort of buying the the right assets that have been you know overly hurt by the market downturn.
2: Yeah, I think having a a framework where we're able to assess the relative attractiveness of different investments at different times. So we we use a valuation implied return framework where we we make some assumptions about what we think the cash flows will be, and then we look at what the current price is, and we, we estimate an implied return. And we calculate those over 200 equity markets, you know, 150 fixed income markets, 30 currencies. And we do that every month. And so you know, we're not trying to make a prediction or forecast of the return of any asset class. It's just the way that we state our valuations instead of using ratios so that we can compare Bonds and stocks, and using an evaluation implied return, it allows us to have a common unit of measurement. It's not that we think that the return is going to be 2% or 3%. It's that that's what we think is implied, and then we compare those returns. And so, in an environment where the markets are down 30, 40%, well, we're going to have our valuation implied returns updating. And so that's going to allow us to work out whether we think things are attractive on a relative basis. If everything falls by that amount, if we've got cash and bonds, then we'll increase the risk in our portfolios by taking advantage of those. And then we'll be looking for investments that really stand out that have maybe look really attractive relative to other investments based off our valuation plus return. And we have our checklist. Every month we score the asset classes using a couple of factors that allow us to say, yeah, that looks underpriced and it's quite unpopular. And we think that fundamentally, you know, it's a sound investment. And so that's how, you know, we would be prepared for that. And you know, we're constantly scanning markets all the time. And again, we're not trying to perfectly predict the return on every asset. We're trying to use that as a, a way of ranking the opportunity set and taking advantage of it. And so as we're using the valuation plus return framework and we're looking at the contrarian indicators and checklists. You know that allows us to assess in a relatively objective way where we see the opportunities, and then portfolio managers you know, will work out and adjust their portfolio accordingly, and and then we'll have peer review, and you know they'll be challenged to make sure that we're thinking sensibly about the portfolio. The idea is not to make a consensus-based decision; it's just to make sure that we test each other's thinking out and make sure we're not missing something. But you know, it's got to be more
1: like bees than that's than, right. Than downloaders, yeah. you
2: don't want to be you want to be open to challenge, but you don't want to be biased too much by other people. So you want to make sure you're not missing something, but you're also you don't want to you know, let the crowd sort of set the tone. We want portfolio managers to build portfolios that make the most sense. You know, our process is set up in a way that I like to think about it as like it's a nice gentle hand in the middle of somebody's back that's pushing them to behave in a contrarian way that is to be a value investor. And we have frameworks and processes set up so that it takes, we want to try to remove as much of the emotion From the decision of whether to invest or not and we want to make it as kind of analytical and data driven as possible now value investing is judgment based but within our frameworks and models that's where the fundamental views and the research has gone in and you know when things are really cheap and and there's a lot of investment opportunities it's it's important that you take risk take advantage of it and you know as a value investor who you know maybe is more conservative we can sometimes you know be viewed as kind of bears you know, you're always bearish and when the reward for risk is attractive and things are priced for attractive long-term returns if you don't take advantage of that then you're not a value investor you're a bear and we don't like to think about ourselves as bears we like to think about ourselves as value investors um, and so you know it's important to be a value investor and so the challenge with contrarian investing is you don't want to be contrarian for contrarian sake as you mentioned in the intro and so there's a really great quote I love from Warren Buffett where he says you know being a contrarian is just as foolish as a follow the crowd strategy. What's required is thinking, not polling. And so, from our perspective, first and foremost, we're you know we're fundamental value investors, and that um, we're not just buying things because they're unpopular. We think that things that are unpopular are more likely to be underpriced. And so, you have to have, as Seth Klarman talks about, you've got to have that contrarian streak, but you can't forget the calculator that's really important. And so a lot of our fundamental research and analysis that underpins our approach is that calculator. And we like to think we've got a conservative calculator that when we make mistakes, we're less likely to err by being overly optimistic and overly confident.
1: Daniel, thank you again for being here. It's always interesting to talk to you.
2: Thanks, Drew. A lot of fun.
1: And uh, thank you for listening. For Simple But Not Easy, I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now.
0: The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.